Hello. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This episode is the second part of my three-part interview with Maida Commerce, who is a poet, novelist, and healer. This is the second stage on our journey. In the last interview, we focused upon Maida's artistic dimension. You heard her read some of her powerful and moving poetry and a selection from her novel, The Mending Time. You heard her tell how her poetry arose as a part of the long tradition of poetry with the women of her family and was and is a means of honoring her ancestors and expressing her inner voice, providing a personal way of healing. Then you heard her tell how moving from writing poetry to writing stories in her novel was the embracing and expression of her outer voice. It was the process of coming to believe in and affirming something she had never been taught, that her voice mattered, that it mattered publicly and not just personally. In this episode, we want to talk about the healing dimension of who Maida is and of her work. We want to let her continue to tell her story, especially as that led to the development of story medicine as a resource and healing process. This is what she said about that development. My work with people, you know, it, it takes them to those stories, to those places that they had not told and that they had not spent time with uh, and that they had spent a lot of energy not telling and preparing a way, working with them somehow to prepare a way uh, for them to find their language and break their silence and go ahead and tell it. Well, welcome back, Maida. Thank you for being with me again. Thank you. Why don't we begin this time uh, by letting you continue your story, uh, especially as your journey from a poet uh, into a story medicine woman. Mm. Yes, and so... Um, I realize now that I need to say more about the influence of my father uh, on that process, on my life, on my journey. Um, he left Chicago and left um, us when I was about three years old. And I have some very vivid memories I say vivid because I remember um, tall, his tallness, uh, the color of the coat that he wore, um, and just his presence was very uh, big to me. And um, I did not know what he and my mother were talking about, but the essence of the conversation that they had in the hallway she didn't even let him into the house, but it was in the hallway in front of the front door, and somehow um, I was there. Um, the essence of it was he was trying to get her to reconcile with him, and she would not. And it was brief and very uh, final, and I felt the finality of that. Um, 
and those images remained in my mind and and the kind of memory I have, I call it a writer's memory, but I know it's more than that. These are the kind of things that sort of file themselves away back there. And uh, during my years in Atlanta, at least during the end of that period of time, uh, maybe the last few years, I was fortunate enough to be part of a writer's workshop curated by um, a West African shaman by the name of Ralph Chael Thurman. And um, he would give us prompts, and they always seemed to have some type of uh, intention behind them. But this particular day, um, Nina Simone had just passed away, and he asked us to write a poem in honor of her. And I was struggling to, I, I couldn't quite go to that place. And he said, well, if that's hard for you, write about any of your ancestors that you want would want to pay tribute to. And in, in about 10 minutes, this poem came tumbling out of my memory. Um, or at least the images did, and I was able to write this poem. And when I read it, folks said it painted a picture. Mm. So uh, I want to start with this poem because it sort of is first based for me as far as my poetry as medicine. Okay. And, and this is from your book. Which book? Yeah, it's from my first collection of poetry entitled Rain Songs, Poems of a Woman's Life. And this poem is entitled The Tall Blue Shadow. Goodbyes echoed, splattered, the half-lit door and hallway of my third year as they stood Soft woolen coat and hat disappeared down darkened stairs, the door shut, and they spoke of you. Black, they told me, shoe black, black as night. Beautiful voice, velvet blue, and I dreamed of you. Harm's way was mine once blue was gone. Harm's way down a hard road disguised as easy blue. And I walked it, giving away most of me, trudged thorny, dry places, mined for water neath Sahara sands, searched for friends on battlefields, made my spectrum without blue, cutting rigid, spicy, tasty ruby red without blue. Ever looking back for blue, grasping for the next best thing, swinging on the tail of a tall blue coat, Nobody else could wear. 
rediscovered blue in dreams speak, sculpted new sounds, peeled off graying, dead skin, rejection, slowed, stopped, heard, ticking inner clock talk, recovered, stolen, swirling light, lights. Then one magenta morning, in freshest lilac tones, this heart announced herself. Let go the wind-whipped coat, heard ancestral blue whispers, and learned in wake time to breathe living blue waters. Wow. So how did how did this once you broke this then how did that play into your well transformation? It, I, I was immediately aware of the liberating <laughs> force of that. Uh-huh. And um just the fact that it had freed up space in my head, it had freed me from uh, the sense of loss that I carried and uh -huh. had carried all those years. Um, and so I began to incorporate writing because up until then, the group work I had done with women, and I ran healing circles for... Uh, recovering women in Atlanta for 10 years. Mm -hmm. In those circles, there wasn't any writing happening. People, you know, when they were led, would just begin to share their stories. They would, it, it was storytelling. And we knew that that was uh, healing. And, I mean, I could visibly see the difference in people from the time they came to the first meeting, and then it might have been six months later or it might have been a year later. I've sort of uh, changed the format up uh, over that 10-year period of time to see what worked best. So folks weren't writing yet, but in the context of working in a, and it was a circle again, and he called it writing in the circle of life. And some more stuff too that I don't quite remember, but um, he had a very healing presence and he would go back and forth between uh, his home in Atlanta and Africa to be in ceremony and to uh, continue to do more initiation kind of work. So it was like uh, being exposed to the part of your culture that had been taken from you. Mm -hmm. And so, and then not even articulate any of that, but just to be in the energy of it. Mm -hmm. And so when I wrote this poem, it was like a door flew open. <laughs> okay. And I began to really pursue uh, the medicine through poetry. 
But there's another thread. In graduate school, um, and I guess it was around 2001, uh, I had done what I called a community forum on race on the campus of the school where I went, which was uh, Goddard College in Vermont. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this community forum had been, uh, there had been flyers, there had been a radio interview, the school has its own radio station. I had gone on there talking about it, and I had expected for people from the immediate community to come in, as well as students and uh, whoever, you know, felt drawn to a community forum on race. I went in, the place was full, but it was all faculty members. <laughs> all faculty. And so I uh, conducted this forum, and it was all about remembering, going back to the first uh, memories of race or of racial difference. And every, everybody in that story, it, everybody in the room, we just took turns and told those stories. It was all white women, uh -huh. except for one man who was in another program. Um, he waited and spoke last. It was very interesting how it unfolded. And by the time he spoke, tears were coming down his face. And he said, you know, everybody, and let me back up, everybody in that circle who had spoken had a maid story. Every, it was all about the maid. And what that taught me is that in some instances, you have to deal with class first hmm. when you're going to talk about healing. Hmm. Class must come first before you can even get to race because that's, you know, that's just the, how the echelon is built in terms of our experience. And so um, by the time this brother spoke, he was crying and he said, I don't know if you all have thought about this, but these women had families of their own. But by the time they finished taking care of you and got home, they were tired and spent and could not take care of their own families, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and we had just some incredibly moving and uh, revealing discussion. Everybody was vulnerable, and that's, that's another thing. Story medicine will take down the false walls between people and get them open and talking before they know what has happened. Mm. That's my experience of it. And everybody will start talking about, well, I've never just opened up like that in front of strangers or people that I barely know. The spirit starts moving and makes that happen. You know, that's my experience of it. 
But before we finished, the door opened, and my uh, program director walked in, and she looked around herself. And she was a very gifted woman, but she said, I don't know what I've missed, but I can tell that some story medicine has been going on in this room. Mm, mm. And when she said that, I felt... Uh, Incredibly moved, but I also felt like she named <laughs> what was coming out of me naturally, mm. you know, and that I, I embraced that and I've, I've held on to that ever since. So how did that then lead to what you're doing with, you know, deciding to kind of make this uh, an open therapy? Um... Well, ever since I had my uh, wellness practice and it began to uh, move me out of one-to-one -one sessions and into group work, uh, I knew that that was what I was called and gifted to do. Um, but it was like I was following a breadcrumb trail. I did not have a plan for it. I, I never said, well, in 10 years, I want it to be this or that, or, I mean, I just continue to follow it. I will say uh, that many changes happened in society at this, during this same period of time, and I knew that story medicine was very relevant and uh, could be a resource. And so I expected uh, it to gain traction and speed uh, somewhere along the way. Um, but here we are. I mean, it's... <laughs> It's still, uh, it's something that is uh, community-based. It's something that uh, has enjoyed a word-of-mouth sort of uh, way of promotion. Um, but it is in no way commercial. <laughs> well, so, I mean, you know, how did you begin to... Uh, say, I want to intentionally, not accidentally, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. uh, as a part of something else, how did I move to wanting to, like, make a website and, and, and you know, say, I'm, I'm offering a service uh, in which I want to help use this tool as a means of helping people heal? Uh, well, I began to see that it was helping me heal. And I knew that there was nothing unique about my experience. Mm -hmm. uh, in working with the women for those years, I realized that uh, there were some common threads that ran throughout those stories. You know, uh, male-female relationships, the power dynamic, um, the abuse of that power, uh, 
And your novel talks a good deal about that. I was not. I I was not. Uh, there was nothing unique. The only thing unique about me was that I was asking questions about healing uh, long before a lot of other people were, mm -hmm. and that uh, I was testing it out on myself. Mm. And it was working, so I figured it was working for me. Um, I could share that and uh, see where it took us, well, basically. How do, you, how, do you, how do you understand healing? What is that? Mean? Healing. So um, I, followed, I, I, I followed some uh, incredible spiritual teachers in the 90s. Uh, I won't name names because that can, you know, be misleading. But uh, one of them defined healing as uh, the return of the memory of wholeness. Okay. Um, and I, when he spoke, uh, and he's a man from another country, and when he, and he, he his teaching was indigenous, and I. There was something in me that knew I had to have indigenous teaching. Um, and so when he said that, I grabbed a hold of that. It's like saying, uh, something has been taken from you, but uh, you can get it back. Okay. The return of the memory of wholeness. Okay. Yeah. What about medicine, then? What, is, what does that mean? What does medicine do? Medicine is uh, uh, something you can't see, something you can't buy. It's, it's uh, something that can fill holes and gaps. Uh, it is something that is ageless and timeless. Um, something that our ancestors were very familiar with. And uh, so story medicine. Uh, you know, my program director also led me in the direction of some uh, Native American writings, and there was a book called Coyote Medicine that I read as a graduate student, and it told uh, stories about um, uh, this medicine man. He had been trained conventionally, but he came back to his people to give them the benefit of, of his knowledge and you know, what he had, and he realized he couldn't really use most of what he had gone out and learned, but he began to listen to their stories and extract uh, the, the wounded energy from their stories and see if he couldn't uh, help them awaken to the things that they really had power over. So it's a... It, it, I mean, each case is unique, but there is a common thread in terms of struggle and the need to reclaim what was lost. That's, 
that's consistent throughout every story I've ever heard. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's a, I like that. I like mm-hmm. that image. That's a, mm-hmm. that's a good, strong image, powerful mm-hmm. image. Mm-hmm. So, um, your novel is a form of story medicine. Absolutely. And kind of tell us a little more about how that came about. You know, because you were a poet, and and then you. I know, I know. Uh, when I went back to Chicago to live, I I uh, was divorced in the year 2000. And uh, as devastating as that was, um, you know, basically it meant everything about my life up to that point, I had to step back from and, uh, and let go. Um, and then I wound up, uh, returning home to Chicago uh, because I wanted to teach. Um, I was f- completing my uh, Master of Fine Arts degree and I had uh, abandoned the idea of uh, a doctoral degree. I did not want to be a researcher. I wanted to write and I wanted my work to be healing. Uh, and I wanted to help others do the same. So I wanted to teach that, and I was clear about that. So when I uh, I went back home, I was able to start really uh, teaching in my community and uh, gaining some experience teaching in, in uh, higher ed. Um, but in school... Uh, first of all, before I even get on school, a uh, close friend of mine in Chicago, her name is Angela Jackson. And Angela is a highly celebrated, not just poet, but writer and novelist and playwright. She's written across genre, and she never, we kind of grew up together in the black arts movement, but she was undaunted. She just wrote. She didn't go off and get married and have a family. She just wrote. So she's got volumes and volumes of writings. And so when I went back there, she started talking to me about, you know, we were getting together. She started talking to me about uh, her novel. And I'm like, I, I didn't know that she had done all this work. And she she finally told me, uh, She's gotten a, a publisher for her novel, and I'm in the back of my mind, novel. Um, so in the MFA program, you could write a play, you could write poetry, you could write a novel, or you could write uh, a screenplay. You had all these different uh, genres that you could uh, just sort of jump into. And I had always believed wholeheartedly that I would never have to write any fiction because there was so much depth and substance in the real things that I had seen. But when I got quiet about it, in fact, on my first night on campus, (laughs) uh, I... 
was I just surrendered. I said, you know, whatever it is that you want me to do, tell me. And before I could drift completely off to sleep, a voice spoke to me and said, you will write a book. Uh, what, it, what was it exactly? You will write a book of healing for middle school black girls. And I began, I began to weep. Um, I had no idea what that meant, but I knew that was my, you know, that was my direction. Um, and I began to just write chapters, chapter by chapter by chapter, and take memories of things that I had heard and seen and kind of weave them together things that were outstanding but weave them together and uh, a lot of it was uh, like i said it was real but i the way i was weaving it together was was making something else out of it and when i could see what was happening i I called my mother. I said, Mama, will you please come? I need to talk to you. And she came to my house, and we took a walk. It was a beautiful day. And I said, Mama, um, I need your permission to write about some things. I, I'm, you know, I've got this project in school. I, I don't know what it's going to, how it's going to manifest. But I need to be able to freely write about some of the things uh, that I remember from childhood. And she said, she, she didn't hesitate. She said, if you think it will help someone, write whatever you need to write. Mm, yeah. And so that was my green light, and I just took off and never looked back. Well, one of the things that I think your novel does so very well um, is, even though you don't address white supremacy directly in the novel, white supremacy created a trauma, not just for individuals, but for a culture. Mm -hmm. And as a part of that, deprived them of access to means of healing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And in your novel, you show how wonderfully and ingeniously uh, they develop their own means of healing and medicine. Mm -hmm. um, kind of tell us a little more about about that. Well, it was in them. Uh, as a people, uh, African Americans, and I and I use that term uh, with the utmost of endearment. It took us over a century after emancipation to call ourselves African. Uh -huh. You know, for so many reasons. But as African Americans, we are some of the most creative uh, and um, it, uh, there's just this, we, we, we carry medicine and we don't even, 
give ourselves credit for that. We carry it. You know, there's always a way to address adversity. There's always a way to address a need, and it can be something so simple, you know, but we find it and we create it, and then we go on about our business, you know. Um, and that's another reason why story medicine becomes so important. If we tell our children about how we met that moment of adversity and how we were able to move through it or move it out of the way of what, whatever happened uh, to help us to survive, then our children get a leg up from, it, from the inside. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't have to go out into the world looking for a labor. They can get it from home. You know, if they just had the stories of their parents and their, their grandparents, oh, my God, you know. And I, I, I really get excited. I get on fire when I start thinking about that and talking about that. I believe that with all my soul. Well, and you, you use uh, in the novel uh, a woman called the bishop. The bishop is very real. Okay. She's real. Okay. Little bitty woman. <laughs> <laughs> With a whole lot of power. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and talk about talk more about that dimension. Um, she, she's one of the ones who took uh, some of the African traditions and cloaked it in uh, biblical or Christian uh, tradition. And that was another of the ways in which we used to survive. Uh -huh. You know, to say, okay, we can take that, but then we can make it ours and uh, fix it up. You know, uh, and she did that. She had candles and oils and, and herbs and uh, roots and, you know, things that people had in slavery times. She had all that stuff, and she didn't charge you but a tiny, a tiny bit for it. So you could come and see her, talk to her. She would go down in prayer. She'd take you down to the basement, sit down, you know, uh, pray, and then she would wake up like, you know, uh, she was not the same person after she prayed as she was before she prayed. And then she would have uh, a revelation as to what to tell you to do, uh, how to take care of yourself, and when to come back. <laughs> okay. okay. You know. Yeah. Very, very serious, and it was just for you. And if you took, if you did what she told you to do, you were gonna be okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, and 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 in the in the book, you um, you honor uh, scientific healing with Dr. Lowry. Uh, he's a psychiatrist or psychologist. Mm -hmm. He's a psychiatrist, and and he's an excellent psychiatrist, and and so you you complement 
the bishop and Dr. Lowry mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. in that story. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little more about the harmony of, of that. I think, uh, you know, we come, we're in a place now where it's not either or. We, we think it's either or. We swing between extremes of this or that, but it's really not either or. It's both and. And uh, my grandmother used to tell me all the time, life is not bitter or sweet, it's bittersweet, mm. you know. Um, so to forget about the need to be this or that and just say, embrace it all, to say there's good in it and let me see uh, how these, these things do complement, how the traditional teachings, uh, the ancient teachings as we know them now, this is not their original form. They've been adapted, you know. And Dr. Lowry didn't have every answer, too. He was still learning, and he was still developing his approach. So why not marry the two? This child was wounded, and she needed the best that they had, you know. And thank God she was able to get it. Well, and in, in, in you talked about um, how we have it already within us, and and BJ uh, made walls that, yeah. as a means of, of doing her own self-healing. Yeah, taking uh, care of herself. Which, which Dr. Lowry recognized and, and affirmed. Yes, um, yes. Did did you do those kind of things personally? Or was poetry your means of doing that? Um, I think wall for the walls for me was was a uh, a, a very important metaphor. I think I separated myself. I think I became very astute and uh, perceptive, I knew who was safe and who wasn't. I knew that immediately, you know, uh, because there wasn't the kind of definitive protection and uh, safety in my childhood experience. And so I had to become very observant very fast. And uh, when I began to think about what would uh, BJ do, what would she create to help symbolize uh, the need for safety and protection, it's a wall. Okay. You know. I see. Yeah. Well, and and then I don't like giving away too much of the novel because you know I don't want yeah. folks to read it. But but part of the the culmination in BJ's healing process also becomes the the avenue through which the women in the circle also healed themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, and this becomes important. Uh, when you think about healing as returning, a, re a returning of the memory of wholeness, and you think about the fact 
that our stories are not only alive, but they're infinite because they're connected. It's like this web, and its energy is circulating, and, and uh, life force is vibrating, and we're all enmeshed somehow. Uh, these women began to move as a collective force uh, to see about her, but in the in the course of doing that, they took care of themselves at the same time without necessarily setting out to do that. Our healing is connected. Yeah, okay. I'm a living witness. There's no way I could heal myself and my experience and my family not feel it and my children not feel it and my grandson not feel it because they're connected to me. I can see You that. know. Yeah, and, and I hadn't, I guess I hadn't thought about that. Oh, my before. God. But you're right. You know, oh. This class I just finished, I mean, it became so clear as people, people began to get a breakthrough. One woman in particular just an incredible breakthrough. And I probably should quit calling it a class. It's more like, a church service. I don't know what to call it, really. But pe uh, the healing that happens is so powerful uh, that you can't help. It's like contagious. You mm -hmm. can't help but feel it and you realize the return of the memory of holiness. If I'm whole, if my wholeness is coming back to me and, and we are in process together, guess what? You're going to feel it, too. And so there's a sense of holiness. Holiness, synthesis, oneness. Yeah. Uh, community. I I have learned that healing and learning are synonymous, or at least they better be. You know, I don't try to impart any knowledge to anybody without doing it in the context of healing because if I don't, what good is it? Okay. Well this Yeah, you gonna you you get in the spirit, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> well is is there a, a is there a story you want to tell us apart from what we've already talked about today? Um there's a woman who just was so challenging in the early days of my work in Atlanta before I began to write stuff down. We had a workbook. That's all we had. And uh, this woman, she worked for a government agency. I'll never forget her. She was very, very strong and determined. But uh, I had so much support in Atlanta. I had uh, radio stations that would bring me in to interview me about these healing circles. You know, uh, churches that would say, okay, use this room, this, you know, and wouldn't charge us anything. Uh, a TV station, cable access TV station, please come on and let us talk about this healing. I'm saying we had all the support we could possibly want, and so women would hear and come. 
So this particular woman, uh, she came, and she didn't say much right off, but you could tell she was angry, and not just angry, but angry as hell. I'm saying you could tell that woman. Something had happened to her, and you could see it. It was like radiating off of her. And uh, she was in, I believe she was in a, our one-year group. And uh, I didn't know it at the time. She told her story late in the, in the year. People had the opportunity to tell as much or as little whenever they wanted. And it would be, it would just go around. So finally she told, she said, you know, I had to work two jobs in order to be able to do this, but I was determined to do it for myself. I could feel, when she started talking, I could feel like stuff dropping off of her. Um, she showed us where her ex had taken uh, lit cigarettes and burned her with them. Mm. Um, and then finally she told a story about, uh, I think he had committed suicide. It was a, just, anyway, uh, she told a story about during that year uh, that she worked with us, going to his grave and talking to him and placing every bit of harm over his grave and taking it back to him and leaving it there. You could feel that happening while she was talking. Wow. When we got finished in the very end, she looked like a totally different person mm. um and that was in the early days uh -huh. <laughs> that was before you know i was telling people okay i want you to write it down and i i didn't understand that writing the act of putting it on paper the act of breaking silence and finding language together almost doubles i would i would i go that far the power in it to actually um, write it down and get help from those who've gone before because they all had those stories. It did many of them, in fact most of them, we could we could safely say most of them never had the opportunity to tell their story, let alone um try to heal right and so talk a little bit more about the the connection with the writing uh but now it's kind of it's been kind of oral uh storytelling right. because the oral tradition uh you know our people had griots keepers of the uh history of the tribe and you know the lineage and the lessons but uh, but that was when the tribe was intact. Um, 
Maladoma Somme. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Who? Maladoma Somme. No. Yeah, no. Okay, so he's a West African shaman with two PhDs and I think three master's degrees. And he comes here uh, and brings his medicine from, uh, he's from a little town called Burkina Faso. And he's written books. His, his uh, autobiography tells the story of how he had been abducted at the age of five, I think, by Jesuit uh, priests mm -hmm. and kept taken way off somewhere. He had no way to get back to his home, and they raised him there. He suffered abuse. He t tells all that in his book. Uh, but when he's 20, 19 or 20, he's able to get back home. And when his people see him, they know that he's been altered uh, and, and taught to read and write. Still, they take him through an initiation process. So he receives his rite of passage. But even with that, and he passes the test, he can no longer speak his native language. You know, he's, he's English speaking by that point in time, and he's been taught the Bible from cover to cover. Right. You know, so uh, what do they do with him? They tell him, because you know how to read and write, you must go. You must follow your path. They had already named him for his purpose, which meant to, Maladoma means he who uh, works with a stranger. I don't, I, I don't remember exactly, but he, his uh, dharma is... Uh, infused in his name so they sent him out and they said because you can read and write you can't stay here those people don't have the need to commit anything uh, in writing because it's part of them mm -hmm. they don't it, it's not separate you know uh, we over here it's like, at least this is how I can explain it. I can't say how this works, but I know that uh, part of the writing is as if we are reclaiming ownership of the story. Okay. And we've been taught anything but that. Okay. Well, I had remembered all, I mean, you mentioned it a little bit um, with, with Bishop. Um, and when I asked uh, a question about your poetry uh, in an email, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you had, had talked about that, you know, your, the language was taken from you, mm -hmm. but you could take what was there and change it and yeah. adapt it and use it to your own, which means you didn't mind changing rules, bending rules. That's right. And that Bishop kind of did the same thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. So was that, and you're saying that's what writing then does, is that, that uh, becomes a means by which a person can... Reclaim, um, reshape. Uh, one thing I saw that the black writers would do, they would 
write uh, they would write words according to how they spoke them rather than how they show up in the dictionary okay uh Abbre certain abbreviations, like instead of writing out B-L-A-C-K, they would just put B-L-K. Uh -huh. You know, so w taking something and making it your own, particularly if you're talking about healing from oppression, it's like in order to do that, you must empower yourself. Okay. And that's what we're going to talk about next time. Yes, yes. Our third interview is yes. going to be how story medicine is a means of Rachel healing. Yes. Well, thank you for being with me again today. And again, <laughs> time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> thank so you. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. Again, I want to thank Carol and Tony Asiagi for letting us use their West Asheville Garden Retreat and Sanctuary to record this interview. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the worship project by going to the website theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe, and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. May the words from my mouth speak